0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden, the publications editor for the International Horn Society and the host of the Horn Call podcast. My esteemed guest today is Professor Michelle Stebelton from Florida State University, and uh, I am so excited to get into this conversation with her. She has just a wealth of experience as a performer, uh, a teacher, um, an editor, and, and has a long history of service to the international. National Horn Society. Um, it was really, really great to sit down and chat with Professor Stebelton and uh, talk about her path to becoming a college professor, um, all of the different and varied activities she's been involved with, and then kind of tying it up at the end and bringing it all back to the International Horn Society. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle Stebelton. You know, thanks so much for talking with me today. There's there's so many things we could talk about, but um, maybe we could talk about like what if we start out by uh, maybe talking about your early inspirations, musical and otherwise, and kind of what led you down this path to where you are now being a, you know, extremely active performer and just a a widely known pedagogue and you're composing now. I mean, all of these things. Um, Could you talk a little bit about those early days and, and how you got your start?
1: Sure. Well, it, uh, gosh, where to begin? Um, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to play the flute, and my mother said no because I had stopped practicing piano, and she said that I I was a type A personality and would want to be first chair, and with my work ethic, that wasn't going to happen. So <laughs> I had to play any other instrument for a year and prove to her I would practice. And my brother was by choice a horn player, two years older. And he said, play the horn. I can help you and you can get good without practicing. So it started out as a scam. (laughs) um, My teachers, I had two teachers early on, Robert Ralston and Dottie Stale, and they were truly inspirational. They were pillars of the community. We had a thriving music community in a small town. I grew up in Midland, Michigan. Mm. And so we had our own orchestra. We did community theater. Um, they brought in major guest artists. We did Vini's Waltz Evenings and Italian Aria Nights. And um, I got to play in all of those settings starting in the eighth grade. Wow. So, um, so I think just being in that environment was inspirational. Um, mm-hmm. I had some great training along the way. Um, but uh, Doug Campbell, I studied with for two years in high school. Mm-hmm. he was at Michigan state at the time he taught me so much that kicked in when i was in my 20s mm-hmm. all of all of the synapses fired in my 20s and i kept having these moments in the practice room oh that's what he was talking about that's what he meant so i really did get a lot out of all all of the teaching that i had growing up
2: mm-hmm.
0: Did you know right away that this was hey, this this is something I want to pursue at a very high level and maybe do as a career? or did that take sort of was there a progression towards that that kind of a decision?
1: I had a minimal, vague understanding of what it was to be a musician. My mother was a pianist, organist, um, accompanist, teacher, and that wasn't what I wanted to do in the sense that I didn't play piano. I didn't want to continue playing piano. Mm. But I knew from the age of ten that I Wanted to be, or maybe be 11, that I wanted to be a musician for a living. I just mm-hmm. didn't really know what that looked like.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: I identified with playing. I identified with music. Um, I always have had some trouble with academic classes that required memorization. I don't memorize words very well. And I think I connected well with music. So mm-hmm. it was just a natural place for me to land. Um, in fact, the the idea that I wanted to play flute Um, at the end of the first year of horn, my mother said, yes, you are allowed to play flute now. So I took it for the (laughs) summer. Well, we started it in the summer. I took it for the summer. And at the end of the summer, she said, which instrument do you want to play flute or horn? And I said, well, I'd like a year to decide. And she said, no, you have to decide now. One instrument. Uh And my rationale for staying with the horn was that I liked the teacher and I was a year behind on the flute, and I would never catch up in the profession because I wanted to be a professional. Hmm. I was at age 11.:
0: Interesting. So. And what, so I met, you know, you got into the junior high band in high school and that sort of thing. What were those you know, it, it doesn't necessarily matter what kind of band program people come from. They're great musicians that come from very small programs, great musicians that come from large ones. but what, what was that? that like, um, you know, in junior and high school going through the the band program where you grew up?
1: Well, I was, as a seventh grader, put in the eighth and ninth grade band. Mm-hmm. That was musically more rewarding, but it meant that lunchtime I was by myself because I wasn't with my peers. Uh, and, you know, at that age group, that's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in high school, band was fine, but I was already playing in the local symphony and the pit orchestras and the symphony next door um i was having experiences with adult Mm semi-professionals and so i wasn't as happy in my band but i'm hoping that i didn't make my unhappiness known other than i wanted to get out of the marching band
2: Mm
1: -hmm. we didn't march (laughs) competitions but we did march all the games Mm -hmm. and at the games i was on um Uh, Bellfront Melophone, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: one of the games, somebody stopped and I walked straight into the person in front of me with my hand in my face. Yeah. And I busted my lip in several places. My teeth were loose. There was some question as to whether or not I would lose them. And I said, I don't want to play in the marching band anymore. I know that this is what I want to do for a career. Marching Mm -hmm. is not important to me. So I had that conversation with the band director and he said, but you're my only horn next year. I need you. Uh, I said, I do not want to play in the marching band. I will not play in band if it comes to it.
2: Mm-hmm. And he
1: said, then you can't play in the local symphony and pit orchestras because they had a contract that you couldn't do one without the other. Oh. I said, that's fine. I'll get more experience when I go to college. I don't mm-hmm. want to play in the marching band. That was my number one goal.
2: Uh-huh. And he
1: said, he said, I'll think about it. And <laughs> In the six weeks that he thought about it, I applied to, was accepted to, and got scholarship for, um, going to Interlochen Arts Academy.
2: Mm-hmm. So I
1: ended up there for my senior year. Okay. And really, the only reason I thought about it was because I was trying to get out of marching band. So I didn't have a problem with concert band. It was, uh-huh. it was. So, um, so I went to Interlochen and then went on to University of Michigan. So, yeah. Who,
0: who was teaching at Interlochen at the time?
1: John Jacobson, who had okay. studied, he had studied with Louis Stout. So I had okay. advanced training on some of Louis Stout's techniques, which made it an easier transition when I went to study. With mm-hmm.
0: Mr. Well, that was going to be my next question. You know, uh, Louis Stout is someone I think, and I've certainly heard of, though I just didn't. Didn't have any experience. I never got to, you know, see him teach in a master class or anything like that. Could you share with us a little bit about what that was like studying with him? He's just a, you know, a renowned teacher. He's got all those, you know, I've I've certainly seen the warm ups and the packet that, you know, <laughs> all of the all of that stuff.
1: Well, he was a very loving and very grumpy man. He was <laughs> <Of years laughs> both. Um, he taught he taught through repertoire you were responsible for learning the notes learning the style learning the phrasing and then his job was just to put the finishing touches on mm. and he went through i don't know i can't speak for the other students but in my lessons every single week i brought in new material
2: mm-hmm.
1: the entire lesson and so i went through maybe 65 solos and um uh, I don't know, six excerpt books and Mm -hmm. uh, parts and pieces of maybe 20 etude books. Um, He would rotate solos, etudes, and excerpts. So each week you had to bring in a lesson's worth of either solos, etudes, or excerpts. Mm -hmm. Was really big on his fingering system. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I think is most misunderstood about his teaching, is that he enforced the B-flat horn that you had to play all on the B-flat side And most of the students in Michigan started on F horn. So we Mm -hmm. were all comfortable with F horn, Mm -hmm. but not everybody knew their B flat side through the mid range, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So his mission was to make sure that you could play B flat side everywhere on the horn,
2: Mm.
1: then start mixing up the fingerings for the best use for that particular passage. And then in slurs that you had valve slurs through passages instead of lip slurs or half and half that yeah. There wouldn't be the one isolated lip slur. So most of the students got through learning the B flat side, but then they never learned to mix and mingle between the two sides. Okay. How interesting. So that was yeah. really his ultimate goal, was that yeah. you figure out what's best for a particular passage.
0: Was that was that something unique to his teaching, or did did he mention maybe getting that idea or that that concept, picking it up from other people? Maybe like I know in Europe they play it, you know, their horns stand in B-flat. In a lot lot of cases, they just stay in B-flat.
1: Yeah, I think in Europe, they stay more just on the B-flat side, which Mm -hmm. is what stout students ended up doing. Mm -hmm. Um, He didn't talk about where that came from. I don't know if it was from his experience or from a teacher Mm -hmm. somewhere along the way, but but he didn't intend for us to play solely on the B-flat side. Mm Mm-hmm unless you're on a Descant horn or a single right. B flat, which he was one of the early people using Descants and single B flats. Mm-hmm. A- at the time that I was studying, people called them um, cheater horns. The <laughs> it, it was not popular and triples existed, but I think through my college career, I had only seen one triple horn. Mm-hmm. And that was
0: And they're pretty heavy at the time. I mean, they've, they've detected, the technology and the materials they're using have gotten so much more advanced.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you, you did a master's and a, a bachelor's and a master's at Michigan. And then, well, did you study with Lowell Greer at Michigan or privately? Yes. Or? Okay.
1: Yes. So um, Louie and I graduated together. He retired when I graduated from my senior year. Uh-huh. And I was going to apply to Cincinnati to study with Lowell, but then Lowell got the job at Michigan. So very conveniently for me, I got to stay in my apartment and um, just hang out in Ann Arbor for another year. And I, I just did a one-year master's mm-hmm. and studied with Lowell during that time. And was, that Was that
0: a lot of natural horn or, or not?
1: We ended up doing a lot of natural horn. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's obviously a wise choice considering who I was studying with. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually injured during my master's degree.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had about six weeks where I wasn't playing... Because I couldn't even hold up a natural horn. Mm. And then I started doing natural horn. I took some Trump de Chasse lessons with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned the E flat Alto Horn Sonata on Alto Horn because it was right handed. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, I went farther with the natural horn studies, which I'd started with Louis. Mm-hmm. And um, so we did that quite a bit. Um, and then for the rest of my degree, I finished out my ensemble requirements on a backwards horn. Of like- uh- Right-handed, okay. left-handed, a backwards horn, valves on the right hand.
0: How interesting.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I would assume, you know, that your your major teachers, Louis Stout and Lowell Greer, were, were big influences and inspirations on you. But at the time, were there other people that you looked to, whether they're they were horn players or not, that were sort of, you know, mentors or role models in terms of where you wanted to take your career and the kinds of things you wanted to do?
1: Well, at the time, I didn't know that this was where my career was going to go. Okay. Um, I think growing up, well, growing up, my first recordings, we had records. And um, I had records of Dennis Brain, Barry Tuckwell, Herman Baumann, And then my teacher smuggled a recording out of East Germany of Peter Dam. Mm-hmm. And he became my hero. I think probably I most wanted to sound like Herman Baumann. hmm and then I went to my first international horn conferences at age fourteen, mm. and I got to experience all of that. And that was at that conference, Freudus Beckery was one of the
2: mm-hmm.
1: one of the um, guest artists, and she was very inspirational for me in many ways. And I didn't honestly, I didn't make the connection that she might have been a little more inspirational than the others because she was a woman. Mm-hmm. It was such a male-dominated field, and I, maybe because I had a woman teacher as a young child, and she played first horn with me in the pit, and mm-hmm. lot of the orchestras, it didn't occur to me that maybe there was that connection because of the gender. Mm-hmm. But Freud is such an inspirational human being and teacher and player, um, mm-hmm. and obviously all of the guest artists were phenomenal in their own ways. hmm
0: no, that's great. And so, was there? I imagine you know you get. Did you have work lined up right away after your master's degree? Did you do the audition circuit? I, I'm I'm always interested with people about you know what what series of coincidence or fate, whatever you want to call it, you know leads you to you know a certain a certain path. And you know what what led you down towards becoming a full time you know uh, college professor. At, you know basically one of the, one of the largest colleges of music around.
1: Well, the story of how I decided that I wanted to go into teaching is a little different from the story of how I got to FSU. But how I got into teaching, um, my original goal as a child was I wanted to be a soloist. Mm -hmm. And um, it was John Jacobson at Interlochen who said, yeah, that's not really a job. Uh, (laughs) You have to be principal horn in an orchestra and then you can play solos. So your goal is to be principal horn in an orchestra. Mm-hmm. So I went to college thinking that was the goal, but Lowell by, by my master's Lowell realized that I wasn't practicing excerpts and taking auditions as seriously as I needed to. And he sat me down and he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And I did the time ty- crying tearful. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, he said, well, what are the things that you like to do? And I said, well, I like to play solos. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, I love chamber music. Absolutely adore chamber music. And I like playing in the orchestra, but maybe not all day long every day. Mm-hmm. But I, I do like that. And um, I, I was in my first year teaching. I'd never taught until, well, I taught a couple of lessons when I was in high school. And I think that scarred me. Um <laughs> for my master's, I was the teaching assistant. So I had started teaching and I had a couple of middle school students at one of the neighboring schools. And I said, well, I'm enjoying this teaching thing. It's brand new, Mm -hmm. but I'm enjoying it. And by the way, I like editing my friend's papers before they turn them in. Mm. (laughs) Really big on grammar and punctuation. And he said, you've just described college teaching. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why it had never occurred to me that that was a job option. But but that was the moment that it clicked. So my first job was, uh, I, I was injured and I wasn't taking auditions. I had nothing on my plate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I moved out of my apartment because Ann Arbor is very expensive.
2: Mm.
1: And in the summer, I was renting a room in a sorority house. Um, I went to New Mexico to teach summer camp. And while I was there, I got a, a phone call. Oh, I guess it was before I, I went. Before I went to summer camp, I had gotten a phone call. We need a teaching assistant in Oxford, Mississippi Mm -hmm. for Horn because their person had just gotten a job. So I drove down to Mississippi on my way from Michigan to New Mexico, and I signed the papers and um, enrolled as a theory doctoral student But I would be the Horn teacher. Mm -hmm. I found an apartment, went out to teach summer camp. While I was there, I got a phone call from a conductor I had worked with in summer music festivals um, who was kind of Midland-based mm-hmm. for my mom. He said, mm, I just became the conductor of the Midland Odessa Symphony, and the first horn player just got another job. I need a first horn. It's oh, not no. even an extra. Do you need a job? I said, well, let me see if I can get out of this other thing. Mm-hmm. And there was another student who hadn't worked out her future with the right college, and she was interested. So Ole Miss let me back out of the contract. Mm-hmm. Apartment let me back out of the apartment. um I drove from New Mexico to Midland, uh, Texas, mm-hmm. and rented an apartment down there and went back to Michigan and collected my belongings and moved 1800 miles to my first job in Midland, Odessa. Um, so I was in that orchestra and then Lone Star Brass Quintet and taught a lot of little kids mm-hmm. um, what the job is. And so now the part about how I got to FSU. I knew I wanted to look for teaching jobs, but I didn't have a doctorate. And Mm so my plan, my life plan was three years in Midland and then go do my doctorate and then apply for jobs. Mm -hmm. But the trumpet teacher at FSU asked one of his former students, do you know of any horn players who would be good for an assistant professor position Mm
2: -hmm.
1: here? They were creating a new position and um, we're looking for somebody either associate they opened it up for associate and assistant Mm -hmm. so do you know anyone who would fit that bill and he said well there's this girl from my wife's hometown and i've heard her play many times in um in church or in recitals in contests because they would always be visiting when those things happened they were just visiting their parents um so and they were went to the same church as our family So he had heard me play and I just won some prizes at the American horn competition. And there's a spread in the horn call, which he'd happened to read. Mm -hmm. So he recommended me. They got my my phone number and the trumpet teacher called me and invited me to apply. I was told flat out by a male friend of mine um, that I was a token female applicant and that I had absolutely no chance of getting the job. So I, I mean, I applied anyway, and I didn't get the job in the first round. They auditioned for, um, associate level position and didn't settle on contracts with whomever they chose. Mm-hmm. Then they decided to make it a one year and looked for somebody who would be willing to come for a year. And at that point, my name came up in part because of my connection through the band directors, um, yeah, so uh, there's a little more to the story, but a lot of it seemed sort of fate-like. That there were a lot of moving parts of former parts of my life interacting to get me the position. Well, Maybe yeah, a-
0: and yeah, isn't that interesting, though? I mean, how you know things things like that work out the way they do. But I, it's, I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine you being anywhere else. And you know, the, the impact that you've had on on the musical community and the horn community is is Incredible. So, I mean, that's. I think you're. I think you're where you're supposed to be. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But yeah.
1: uh, it was a long haul. I I started in a one year position and then had to re audition for the job.
2: Oh and, yeah. And then of
1: course comes yeah. the tenure process and all of that.
2: Sure. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um. So, can we step back a little bit and talk a little bit about sort of, you know, you mentioned you you liked, you liked things other than orchestral playing, and that's one of the great things about university type careers is they allow you a certain amount of flexibility and you know that sort of thing but then on the other side of it is you have to balance all those things you don't just have one job that you go and do day in and day out so uh, you know I imagine over the years you've you've learned some some techniques and tricks and tips for balancing a busy teaching and performing career is there anything that you would you know advice you'd give to new new people in, in that in that role where it's like okay I want to keep playing and be the best player I can be. But then I also have these students that I feel in part responsible for and then balancing all of those things.
1: I don't think that I'm the right person to talk to about balance. <laughs> it's very fortunate for my work-life balance that I don't have a family. I have no idea how people with the family do it. Um, I, the advice I was given when I came into this job from somebody outside of FSU mm-hmm. was if you want to play well, playing has to be your hobby
2: that hmm. that you
1: have to do that as your activity for fun. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you will never play well while you're doing this job. Mm-hmm. And that is true. That is absolutely true. Someone else a year or two in, I asked somebody, I, I don't want to out the person, but um, it was somebody who was doing everything. -hmm. And we are really well respected in the horn world and had a lot of balls in the air. Mm -hmm. And I said, How do you do it? And the answer was tell you the secret, you don't do anything well. And some days, some days I feel like I have home runs. You know, we have a light bulb moment in a lesson and Mm -hmm. great. Or maybe I have a good concert and feel good about it. And then there are a lot of days that truthfully I feel like, Nothing is being done well. I don't have enough time and attention to give to everything. I just do the best I can.
2: Mm-hmm. I, so. I think
0: that's everybody to some extent, though. I mean, we all we're all just doing the best we can at at any at any one moment. But I think that's from someone, as I said, who's as renowned as you are, and has got this career that you have, and you know lots and lots of successful students out there. I think that's good for new people to hear because it is very overwhelming at first. And that feeling of, you know, do I even belong here? Is this, you know, the imposter syndrome thing. I think it's I I can imagine it being encouraging for people that are just starting out to know that like, okay, you know, you can do this and maybe that feeling doesn't ever go away completely. But, you know, you you as you as you get more experience, I think you you probably become more more used to to making things work however they need to to just get the job done.
1: Yeah, I find that I'm a more efficient practicer than I used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, being a good sight reader helps you to learn your music faster. Mm-hmm. Um let's see, what else? Uh if you're traveling, using that time while you're traveling to listen to your program that's coming up. So mm-hmm. I have Mahler six and Mahler three on my playlist right now because mm-hmm. coming up. So so finding Efficient ways to to do your job. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. helpful.
2: Yeah, that's
0: that's very good advice. Um, so in terms of, I know when I first started teaching, I basically was like a carbon copy of the people I'd studied with because you don't really have any choice. You you can only say the things that you know to say, and you try things that you know to try. But then as you become more your own teacher, you you know you you come up with your own ways of talking about things, and then you know there's still that. Core of the people that you studied with, which is nice to have. But then you have your own ideas, and you develop your own things. Could you talk a little bit about that? How you kind of came into your own as being your own teacher over those years? And you know, if there's again, we can talk about in like a general way. If there's trends and horn pedagogy that you've noticed over the years that you've either adopted yourself or that you've seen happen in the field, I think that might be really interesting for people to hear about.
1: Well. My lessons with Louis Stout were repertoire based, Mm -hmm. lots and lots of rep. And some of my early students, when I've seen them years later, they've reminded me, "Yeah, you once assigned me twelve etudes in one week." Well, that was what I did Mm -hmm. for my teacher, so so that didn't seem out of bounds at the time. But Mm -hmm. I think that the students that I have, I have to meet them where they are to some extent. Probably I should for every single student. Although I have a little bit of a philosophy that if they can't do the minimum that I set forth, then it's not the right field for them. Mm
0: -hmm. What do you do? You do much playing in lessons these days. I think early on it's tempting as a as a, a new teacher to just well let me just play it for you so you can hear how it goes. And then you know different different teachers have different philosophies about
2: that.
1: Yeah, I. I used to play more in lessons, I think, than I do. Mm-hmm. Louis Stout played every note in your lesson with you. That was wow. how. Was, that was how he stayed in shape.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's tempting sometimes to play in lessons because you need extra practice time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I realized at some point that that I needed to play in lessons only when it was helpful to the student. Mm-hmm. So I do play in lessons some. Um, some days I don't because I have a concert or or hard rehearsal or haven't well, no, on the days I haven't warmed up, I don't use that as an excuse. I pull out my horn and invariably those days, the first lesson, first excerpt is Brandenburg, Beethoven seven, um, short call. It, it's <laughs> one of those. Uh, or Chike Five or something. Mm-hmm. So some I want to play unwarmed up. Um, but I, I do play in lessons, some I play less than I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I changed in my teaching about 10 years in, I had a junior who was a very fine player playing in the top band. Mm-hmm. And he brought in the boats on foray. Mm-hmm. And we got to the hand stop part. And he looked at me and he said, How do I hand stop? Mm. And I thought to myself, how can you be in the top band and know how, not know how to do this? Mm-hmm. And I had to, So and we worked on it, obviously, but I had to ask myself, was it his fault for not telling me that he didn't know how to do it? Or was it my fault for not assessing where he was and teaching what he needed? Mm. So with as many students as I have, I don't have really, I feel the time and lessons to assess exactly what training everyone has had. Right. So I now have a system where in the freshman year, essentially they have a checklist
2: mm-hmm. but
1: we go through: hand stopping and bass clef and transposition, high register, low register, double tonguing, triple tonguing, mm-hmm. single tonguing, lip trills. It's all laid out, and so their etudes are kind of programmatic. You know that they've they've been laid out for them. Their mm-hmm. solos are individually assigned based on where they're at and what they need
2: mm-hmm. and
1: some of the etudes i give them free range within a book like you must play something from maxime alphonse book one mm-hmm. but they get to choose which etude and well, they can that, i like
0: it. that idea
2: yeah
1: yeah so it's it's somewhat prescribed and somewhat not and scales of course
2: mm-hmm.
1: so, yeah. so yeah that whole system then it's set up in a in a system of units where once they've completed everything in a unit they get the grade attached in the next grade so two mm-hmm. units they get a d 3 a c 4 a b 5 and a mm-hmm. so they should know where their grade is at any time but also it means that they can't skip g sharp harmonic minor <laughs> and still pass their lessons for a year right so so it makes it makes it a little easier for me to police the the students who don't want to do the work. Mm -hmm. The students who do want to do the work, if they can breeze through it, then the reward is they either don't have to take their ending lessons at the end of the semester, or they can bring in whatever material they want to study.
0: Oh, I like that. Yeah. It's sort of front, front loaded in that if you do the work and get it, get it passed off, then you you've got, got some, some credit in the bank, so to speak.
1: (laughs) We want to play Star Wars or Mahler or you know another movement of Strauss one, I whatever you're you're in charge. You bring it in.
0: Oh, I like that. So did that kind of and that's that's excellent and that's very organized and and thorough. Did did that come easily to you implementing that system or was it a bit of a process just sort of figuring out like the best way you wanted to do it?
1: It was a bit of a process. Mm-hmm. I started with a points reward system mm. that our tuba teacher my colleague paul ebers was using
2: mm-hmm.
1: where you could earn x number of points toward your final score and these scores equal these grades and mm-hmm. i started out that way but i realized that in my teaching i like to deviate and talk about the technique behind something let's mm-hmm. work on your sound and we forget about whatever the etude was that they brought mm-hmm. in that it's irrelevant. Now it's about whatever we discovered in the etude.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so the point system didn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. So the checkoff system, there's still that deviation. But uh, for instance, we go through the first 10 Bordoni etudes um, mm-hmm. in the Bordoni Roshu book. And if they can't play the first one really well, because they don't read bass clef and they don't play well in the low register, mm-hmm. we talk about the things and you know work with them on doing what they need to do. And then I say, okay, you gave it your best effort. I'm going to check it off, but we need to see this improvement for the next eighty
2: mm-hmm.
1: so, so the checking off process becomes more about what they've learned and less about what they actually achieved.
0: I like that. Yeah. That yeah. yeah. No, it's, it, and that is such a balance, you know, you certainly for students who are motivated and already playing at a high level, you can sort of push a little bit and expect like. Just the highest standards, and that's good for them. But then, if a student is struggling with something, you don't necessarily want to complicate the issue and say, you know, (laughs) has to be this, or you just simply don't pass. It's that that's a tricky, uh, you know, line to walk, I imagine.
1: Yeah. And we've taken some students out of the units um, where, you know, oh, we had this fundamental thing that we need to do. Mm -hmm. Let's take it out of the system, or let's take off one of the units and replace it with working on tone Mm -hmm. or embouchure change Mm -hmm. or working on articulation or something like a big project. But what I found with maybe I'm guessing at the percentage, 80% of my students Mm -hmm. in the freshman year, they're not ready to do the detailed focused work of perfecting one little thing. Mm -hmm. So doing, I I teach macro to micro. Mm -hmm. So getting them to read more notes more rhythms more styles more of the things like transposition and bass clef and hand mm-hmm. stopping um, having them do more of that freshman year and then by sophomore year we're still doing a lot of that but if i have a student who's ready to do the embouchure change or spend three weeks just working on their sound and and they're ready to do that i am willing to deviate from the plan
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. and then
1: yeah. In senior year, i don't lay out nearly as much
0: yeah. Well, and and that that's I think that's great advice for everyone who wants to go into this is yes, be detailed, yes, be thorough, yes, be organized, but then be flexible. <laughs> yeah.
1: All of the above.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and so I you probably know this, but I remember years ago hearing just that, and I, I experienced this for myself, hearing you and many of your students perform it, all different kinds of things. You just have this knack for uh, playing with such a beautiful sound and then your students have this thread of they just all sound just really really great is do you have a certain approach to teaching tone quality or are there things not and you don't have to give away your secrets if you don't want to but i'm personally interested in that because it is it is noticeable with students who have studied with you just this concept of tone
1: wow well thank you that's that's a very high compliment <laughs> <laughs> um I teach sound in part, maybe through modeling. Um, but we talk about air like all teachers do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also talk about tongue position. I've been talking about tongue position since before that came back in fashion.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it was in the uh, Marv, was it Marvin Howe book. No, the pot egg book, in the beginning pot egg books, mm. books. They talked about T Tato
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> books. Um, at some point, I went and did some research, and almost none of the horn pedagogy talked about vowel shape.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: we talk about vowel shape in their tone lessons. Mm-hmm. That might be the difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and now it's all backed up by this real-time MRI stuff. It actually shows you. Look, look how much the tongue is moving. Look at the arch, and you know all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's great. Are there particular, you know, studies or lyrical etudes that you like to assign just to have students focus on their tone quality?
1: We do what my students have dubbed stable tones. Okay. So I have these relax, I've called them relaxation long tones.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's just, it, it, it's just long tones. It's Remington, except you come back to the note and right. you can do them with you know, a major scale on the top or a chromatic scale on the top, but you mm-hmm. do have any minor scale on the top, um, yeah. whatever configuration you want, but you just go through the slurs in long tones, but while you're doing it, you're aiming to achieve your best sound. and. Mm-hmm thinking about vowel shape and you're thinking about keeping your air present as you change notes, Mm -hmm. that's one of the problems is when people are slurring, they back away with their air. Mm -hmm. And I I remember teachers always saying, blow through the slur, but I didn't know what that meant.
0: Right. It's hard to get them to understand what exactly that means. Yeah. Right.
1: So the stable tones are, they're also about relaxation, about Mm -hmm. taking a full breath and then sighing through the horn. Instead mm-hmm. of Arnold Jacobs,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so so that that's the first thing that we do when students get here. The first thing every semester we go through Steable We used to do a lot of them in morning fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Now I leave the fundamentals classes. Um, the majority of them, my grad students and upperclassmen are doing, and I do them at the beginning and end of the semester.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But but it used to be all me all the time with fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And my warm up for twenty five years started with relaxation long tones. Mm-hmm.
0: So have that, you ever thought. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, have you ever thought about publishing any of those, or you know, making them available outside of your your teaching studio?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's more about the concept of how you play it than the right.
2: notes. Yeah.
1: But yes, I have. I I was encouraged years ago to write a book
2: mm-hmm.
1: a, about this. And I started it, but, um, in true fashion of work life balance, it hasn't been finished.
0: Well, <laughs> sign me up for a copy as soon as it as soon as it comes out, but, <laughs> <I will do. laughs> um so let's. Uh, thank you again for speaking with me today and giving up some of your relaxation time. I know you're between rehearsals right now, but um, I, I, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about your involvement with the the International Horn Society, its its importance in your career, and maybe, you know, uh, some encouragement for those out there who maybe haven't joined yet. I mean, it's one of those things, it's like, if you're a horn player, you should really be in the IHS, but um, maybe it would be good for people to hear from you about it.
1: Well, i Joined the IHS in the the ninth grade, oh wow um, the, I think the summer before ninth grade
2: mm-hmm.
1: I joined and I went to my first horn workshop. Um yeah, it would have been summer after eighth grade that I went mm-hmm. to my first horn workshop. and uh, the magazines, the you know the horn call, a lot of the articles were way over my head at the time. Mm-hmm. I wasn't getting much out of the horn call, but going to the conference was life-changing for me mm-hmm. uh, hearing that much really fine playing watching the master classes uh, going and trying instruments and um you know they're just yards and yards and you know exactly of of uh exhibits and being able to actually speak with these professionals they were human beings who would actually talk to you in the lobby or in the hallway back then even even the guest artists would eat in the cafeteria. Everybody would eat in the cafeteria together. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of conversations with those professionals. So that to me was worth the price of admission.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then I, I later I grew into the horn call and the articles and not just the comics in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, there, there are just so many back issues of the horn call that almost anything you have a question about, there's probably an article that's been written. And now that it's all been, been um, digitized, we mm-hmm. can go in and easily refer to those articles. And I so the price of admission for the Horn Society, I mean, you get to go to the conferences for what, $25 less.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you get the horn call and you have access to the back pages, the member pages where there are recordings and such mm-hmm. on the website. But the true price of admission, I think what you're paying for is the fact that we have a society, that we have a fraternity, as you will, of horn players who are lifelong committed friends to the cause, to each other. Um, going to the conferences, you make lifelong friends and you realize that everyone around the world is doing this. Mm-hmm. and having the society coalesces people and the society Mm -hmm. can't exist without people joining it.
2: Right. I
1: think the number one benefit is community. Mm -hmm. And then yes, you get all these other things, but, Mm -hmm. but community is the real reason to join.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, it, yes, there's the price of membership and yes, X goes to scholarships and different programs and things, but yeah, the, the price It's hard to you can't really put a price on feeling a sense of belonging with people that are doing similar things to you and feeling like you have a bond with people that are, you know, thousands of miles away. So that, yeah, the longer I've been in the IHS, the more that the more that's come to mean a lot to me. And it's, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, nowadays where you know, you have various social media groups and the internet and all of this stuff. There's no shortage of information. Uh, some of it's great. Some of it's not very good at all. And very, you know, very suspect. I would say if you do, you just get playing advice from somebody on the internet,
1: (laughs) but the horn weighs 25 pounds and I've never seen that horn.
0: Right. Yeah. (laughs) What's it made out of? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that you know, the IHS curates a lot of that. You know if it's coming from the IHS, it's it's good information. It's information that's gone through the, you know, the process of being vetted and it's it's not just somebody just kind of saying whatever they feel like. At least that that's kind of my my interpretation of
1: it. A hundred percent, especially being a professor at a research university. Mm-hmm. Uh, our students, when they are doing research, um, the the horn call is a great place for them to go mm-hmm. because, as you say, it's vetted information.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, and I think this would be a great sort of wrapping up um, uh, way to to tail off the interviews to talk about your recent work. You're the editor of our teacher talk column. Could you talk a little bit about um, what your work on that has been like and then maybe uh, talk a little bit about uh like some past articles, and we've got one. I'm not exactly sure when this interview is going to come out, but you said you had a really interesting one lined up for uh, the February 2024 issue. Maybe give us a little bit of a preview of that.
1: Oh, wow. Well, let's see. Um, the editing of the column, um, the hardest part for me has been, truthfully, just getting people to actually submit their articles. People mm-hmm. say, oh, I have this article idea. Yes, I want to do it. And then I, if I don't get it, I can't edit it and we can't submit it. Yeah. So, so this is a plea for people to actually send in your articles. If, yes. If you an idea. Yeah. So, um, the, the new article that's coming down the pike, um, is it has a lot of information about practicing and, um, gosh, I haven't read it now for a couple of weeks. um, it, it's. I don't know how much to give away.
0: What's up to you? Who's who's the uh, who's the author of this particular James
1: James Wilson, mm-hmm. and um, he is a former Clevenger Pleven, student, mm-hmm. and uh, he he and I taught together actually for a year at FSU, mm-hmm. um, and in this article he shares lots of really interesting and cool ideas like. Uh, one of them is putting the metronome on triplets when you're practicing Mozart.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a way to help you to elongate those sixteenths that we all tend to rush. And um, he he speaks in the article, it's not written the way you would write a dissertation. It's mm-hmm. very much when I started reading it, I heard his voice in my head. Mm-hmm. It It sounds like him. And that's one of the challenges as an editor that I find is how to edit something without removing the author's voice. Exactly. Yeah. So used to editing treatises and, you know, doctoral, academic papers, mm-hmm. but, uh, the editing and keeping somebody's voice where maybe the grammar isn't quite right, but it's a turn of phrase that we all use.
0: Mm-hmm. Or more conversational rather than like, you know, lecturing or that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah. No, we we yeah, exactly. I'm right there with you. We we do the same thing. And your articles when they come in are always so well edited, so we we don't really have to do much at all to get them get them ready for publication. So, thank you for that, by the way.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I,
0: I, well, I'm I I sympathize 100% with your your uh where you said, you know, you just need people to send things in. And that, that goes for the Horn Call as a whole. We're, we're doing fine on content, but there's, you know, people have so much information out there and so many different experiences individually that we want to try to give everybody a voice. And I think that's the thing about, I, I'm very uh, encouraged and excited about, where the IHS is right now, and what they're trying to do, just to bring together even more people, not just in the United States, try to to branch out overseas, and and it's not just about college teachers, it's not just about professional players. It's there's there's room for people who don't eat, sleep, and breathe the horn twenty four hours a day. There's room for people who do it for fun on the side.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think the 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 direction that the whole society has gone in, as well as the horn call. Is very positive, bringing communities together. And yeah, I do encourage people uh, if they have uh, my article, my column is called teacher talk. So obviously there's an educational slant, Mm -hmm. but feel free to submit if it's in another language. That's okay. We'll work that out.
0: Yeah. We can find somebody to translate. We can, you know, I, if there's room, we really like to publish the translation and the original language. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The... Oh, what was the was it the brass brass bulletin or one of those brass journals? They used to do that where they would publish articles side by side. And the Horn Call has done that too in the past. And you know, it's uh, paper is expensive these days. But if if it's if it's a good article, we'll make every attempt to do both the original language and the translation.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: So well, Michelle, thank you so much for speaking with me today. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I wish we could wish we could talk more. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you for having me. And I appreciate your work. Wow. For the entire horn community, for the horn call, the editing that you do for this podcast, um, for your constant support of all of your colleagues. I don't mean just your peers at your institution, but throughout the world. So thank you.
0: Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure.